In September 1862, as he accepted an assignment change to become military commander of New Mexico, James Henry Carlton reminisced about his journey across Arizona with a group of volunteers known as the California Column. He would write, quote, The march of the column from California across the great desert in the summer months, in the driest season that has been known for 30 years, is a military achievement credible to the soldiers of the American army. However, it would not be just to attribute the success of this march to any ability on my part. That success was gained only by the high physical and moral energies of that particular class of officers and men who composed the column from California. With any other troops, I am sure I should have failed. End quote. Though we are now several years removed from when that letter was written, that seems like as fitting a summary as any as we finally close the books on the Civil War years and the time of both the California Column and Carlton himself in Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 52, Mustering Out. Welcome back, everyone. It has been a long road, but here it finally is. The end of the Civil War. Believe it or not, we have been dealing with the war and its effects on Arizona since episode 37, so since mid-November 2020. And I know, I know, I took a few weeks off in there for silly reasons such as celebrating national holidays with family, but still, I never would have imagined that it would take us 16 whole episodes just to cover everything that happened in Arizona during the war. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, history is the gift that keeps on giving. Last week, we focused on the inaugural session of the Territorial Legislature, which saw the adoption of a legal code, the establishment of counties, an absolutely toothless support for public education, and surprisingly a lot of focus on divorce. But you will recall that one of the prime concerns for just about everyone was how to best fight the Apache. Because, and we'll get back to him in a coming episode, Cochise is still out there doing his thing. And by thing, I of course mean raiding, pillaging, and killing. And that's just one leader over several bands that make up one subsection of the Apache. Believe me when I tell you that the Chiricahuas are not the only Apache not happy with all these Americans suddenly setting up shop in their backyard. And if the history of American Western migration has taught us anything, it's that this sort of unhappiness inevitably leads to conflict, and on the American side, those conflicts produce a certain class of men— Indian fighters. Which is as good a segue as I could think of to now introduce King S. Woolsey. Woolsey has popped up several times in our story, especially in these last few episodes, but it's time to explore what made him so famous slash infamous in Frontier, Arizona. King S. Woolsey was born in Alabama, possibly around 1832, but early state historian Thomas Farish says that he grew up in Louisiana before heading off to California at the age of 18. 
1860, he and two companions made their way to Arizona, traveling on horseback from San Francisco. And this is where we get the self-made man story that we Americans love so much, as Farish recounts that Woolsey arrived at Fort Yuma with $5 in his pocket, which was the combined earthly wealth of the three. Aside from their horses, pistols, and rifles, of course, because, hey, this is a story about the West. Woolsey started out as a mule driver, eventually owning a team of his own and securing contracts to supply the federal troops with hay and other necessities, which was a good source of income if you could get it. He was doing so well that he and a partner bought the Agua Caliente Ranch on the Gila River not too far from Yuma. I don't find this elsewhere, but Farish says that when troops under Albert Sidney Johnson came through the territory on their way to join the Confederacy, Woolsey, as a Southerner, joined them. However, he is said to have caught smallpox near Maricopa Wells and was left behind to recuperate. Though watched for a while as a secessionist, he eventually turned his mind back to business. And it's during this time that Woolsey began to make a name for himself as an Indian fighter. J. Ross Brown, the journalist-slash-writer who accompanied Charles Poston across Arizona, recounts how Woolsey and two hired hands were returning to Fort Yuma with a wagon full of animal feed when they were set upon by a group of Apache. Woolsey, in fine action movie style, coolly asked for his men to take the reins of the animals while he reached for their only weapon, a double-barreled shotgun. In Brown's telling, and once again, this feels ripped straight out of a movie, despite the yells and arrows all around him, Woolsey waited for the right moment when the leader of the Apache rushed into no more than 20 paces before he fired the buckshot. The Apache leader died on the spot while the rest scattered. And being the sort of person who was always willing to set an example, Woolsey and his men hung the Apache leader from a nearby mesquite tree. Brown tells us that he actually saw the body, still hanging from the tree, two years later. Following the call to adventure, Woolsey next moved up to the Lynx Creek area in 1863 with the Walker Party during their search for gold. During his time prospecting in the Bradshaws, we get a story about his party being menaced by yet more Apache. Woolsey decided to invite them to come and, uh, talk. But as they were coming down, he found some pinole, the ground maize mixture favored by the Apache, and added in some strychnine before putting it into the pack of a mule. While Woolsey and the leader talked, the other Apache men did exactly what he expected them to do. They found the animal and broke into the pinole, and the strychnine had the desired results. I know, charming story, right? Of course, we know that the Walker Party did strike it rich, and Woolsey turned his attention back to ranching, developing a ranch along the Agua Fria River near modern-day Dewey. His choice of ranch land, though, was unfortunate, not so much because it was poor spot, but because it just happened to be in the path of established Apache trails. You can probably see where this is going. Yep, Woolsey soon developed quite the hatred for the Apache and the Yavapai who were continually raiding the animals kept on his land. Things really came to a head in January 1864. 
Wuzi had returned from visiting his Agua Caliente ranch near Yuma, only to find that a host of Apache had run off numerous animals from the area of People's Valley. Upon his arrival, the people, at least according to Farish, instantly made Woolsey the captain of an expedition to recover the animals and punish the Amerindians. In addition to what Americans he could muster, Woolsey sent word to Juan Cheveria, the head of the Maricopa, or Peaposh people, to join him in a punitive campaign. I've seen differing figures, but Woolsey led a group of anywhere between 60 and 75 Americans and Amerindian allies eastward, crossing the north edge of the Valley of the Sun, past what would be Fort McDowell, and into the superstitions. There, near the area of Fish Creek, Woolsey and his company found their adversary. Hundreds of them. I've seen it written that anywhere between 200 and 400 Yavapai and Tonto Apache were in the area, which was a lot more than the group was counting on. So, in fine American fashion, Woolsey and his group sent a young Quechan boy they had along with them to tell the Apache they wanted to parlay. It took some time, but the boy was eventually able to convince the Apache that Woolsey was a great American captain, and that Chivaria was the Maricopa chief, and they had come to propose a treaty with them. If you've been paying any attention to the podcast, I'm willing to bet you know generally what happened next. Roughly 30 Apache leaders came in to parlay, where blanket was spread and tobacco and pinole was provided. Talks got underway. That is, until Woolsey touched the brim of his hat with his left hand, which was the pre-arranged signal for his men nearby to open fire with their rifles. In the words of one person who was on scene, quote, We made good Indians out of 24 of their number, or killed them, which is the same thing. End quote. This same witness also noticed what a great stroke of luck it was for the men with them, since many didn't have proper shoes, but now could take the moccasins from the dead Apache around them. Don't get me started on how dark and twisted that is. The place became known as Bloody Tanks, because this massacre happened next to a spot where water was known to collect in the rocks. Woolsey and his party had killed the chiefs, but more fighting from the literally hundreds of other Apache and Yavapai broke out, though the American party was able to hold them off and extract themselves from the hornet's nest they had just kicked. Through this all, the white historians and eyewitnesses note with some pride that only one man was lost, having been run through with an Apache lance. Woolsey would lead several other expeditions against the Yavapai and the Apache, earning himself quite the reputation as a tenacious and fearless Indian fighter, something much more highly regarded back then. This reputation is how he would come to be elected to the state territorial legislature, where he would serve five terms in the council, or upper house. That is where we found him last week, as well as making money for himself off of the toll roads that he and other legislators approved. While in office, he would help set up Arizona's Democratic Party in the early 1870s, after the stigma of being a Democrat had worn away a bit following the end of the Civil War. He did run as the Democratic candidate to be the territorial delegate to Congress in 1878, but lost. He would also go on to serve as a military aide to several territorial governors, and would be a lieutenant colonel in the militia, 
something we'll get to in a future episode. Finally, he was involved in a lot of business interests across Arizona, including in developing the Salt River Valley area. Woolsey eventually died on his ranch due to a heart attack in 1879 at the age of 47. He's actually buried in the Pioneer and Military Memorial Park in Phoenix if you ever have a curiosity to go see his grave. At the time of his death, he may have been the leading citizen of the territory, which is sort of ironic considering that he generally only receives passing references in histories today, and most of them are not flattering. Because, as it turns out, Indian fighting isn't as highly regarded today as it was back then. Go figure. While Woolsey was off fighting Indians, the California volunteers were eagerly expecting the end of their term of service. However, some thoughts also turned south to the turbulent situation in Mexico. Now, since the Gadsden Purchase, we have not really troubled ourselves with what was happening south of the border because we've had more than enough on our plates as it is. But Mexico was in the midst of a great international struggle that was actually forefront in the minds of a lot of people in the United States. You see, for the last few decades, Mexican presidents, including our old and dear friend Antonio López de Santa Ana, had financed their various rises, policies, and eventual falls by racking up a lot of debt from European creditors. Like, a lot of debt. So, in 1861, to get the country's financial situation in hand, President Benito Juarez did the only thing he could do. Tell a bunch of world powers that the country just wasn't going to pay. Okay, maybe that's a glib way of putting it, but President Juarez did declare a two-year moratorium on loan interest payments in 1861. As you might imagine, those European creditors, specifically the British, Spanish, and French, did not particularly care for this declaration and decided Mexico was going to pay one way or the other. These three big boys got together and sent their navies across the ocean to give Mexico a bloody nose and demand that it hand over its lunch money. Both Spain and the United Kingdom would wind up being minor players in the blockade of Mexican ports and the seizure of custom houses. Sure, they had arrived with the French in December 1861 and had a jolly old time steamrolling their outmatched opponents. However, by April 1862, a Mexican envoy managed to explain Mexico's fiscal situation to the Spanish and the British, and they were satisfied with the explanation of, look, we aren't saying we won't pay you back, but we just can't pay you back right now. They also began to realize that the French, led by the blatantly imperialist Napoleon III, might be looking for more than just simple debt repayment. So they packed up and went home. France, on the other hand, had decided Mexico was a good place to expand its empire and, hey, there was silver here, right? And so started a full-on invasion. As just a quick aside, it was a month after the British and Spanish left and around the same time that Carleton and the California Column were marching toward Tucson, that Mexican forces were able to beat off the French at the Battle of Puebla. This battle, which occurred on May the 5th, 1862, was able to temporarily halt the French advance, and became the origin of that holiday that lovers of tequila all know and love, Cinco de Mayo. 
Too bad, though, that it was not all like the Battle of Puebla. French troops would eventually waltz into Mexico City in June 1863, and President Juarez and his cabinet would flee to Chihuahua. But that's okay, because the French already had someone to rule Mexico waiting in the wings. Ferdinand Maximilian Joseph Maria von Habsburg Lothringen, an Austrian archduke who was also the younger brother of Austrian Emperor Franz Joseph I. At the invitation of Napoleon III, Maximilian, as I'll call him from here on out, became Emperor Maximilian I of Mexico in 1864. And just to tie this back around to previous episodes, Maximilian would actually appoint none other than our old friend Manuel Maria Gandra to be the imperial prefect of Sonora. Remember Gandra? He was the political boss and most times governor of Sonora in the 1830s and 40s, before Pesquera kicked him out of power. We'll just wave to Gandra as we pass by, because when Maximilian falls, oops, spoiler alert, Gandra will be thrown into a jail cell for a few years. Now, as you might imagine, a lot of people in Mexico were not happy about this French takeover. The Americans certainly weren't, because of that whole Monroe Doctrine thing, but were so preoccupied with the Civil War that they couldn't do anything about it. Some 30,000 French troops were in Mexico by 1864, and the American army officers stationed in the West were starting to feel a wee bit twitchy with no rebels left to fight. A colonel under Carleton wrote him in March 1864 to point out that Governor Pesquera in Sonora was friendly to the U.S. and would surely fight under the Stars and Stripes to take back his country. As yet another aside to all this, the American soldiers stationed in Arizona actually had a very high regard for Pesquera, whom they respected as an Indian fighter and even allowed him to cross the international border in pursuit of Apache bands. In fact, the year after this letter was written, so the fall of 1865, the governor and his family even took refuge at Fort Mason near Tubac when the French occupation kicked them out of Sonora. Anyway, the letter to Carleton argued that the French invasion of Mexico was a golden opportunity to maybe get some of the land that Gadsden hadn't been able to buy a decade earlier. This colonel wrote, quote, If our government will only allow our people to act in the matter, Sonora will soon be ours. Sonora must and is bound to be ours. It is well to have the question considered and be prepared for whatever may turn up. It is essential to this territory. We want ports on the Gulf of California. End quote. And this sounded really good for Carleton, who was all up for taking Guaymas, and considered it an essential part of exporting Arizona's resources. However, the idea didn't go much further than that. President Lincoln and his advisors were not at all in favor of expending resources in invading Mexico, and trying to take it from France, while the U.S. was still fighting a war with itself. But there were a few times when the war did strike close to home. In 1865, a small company left Fort Mason to chase deserters who had gone down into Mexico. They made it as far as Magdalena before encountering a company of Mexicans fighting for Maximilian. Wishing to avoid an incident, the commander met with his Mexican counterpart but the terms were that the Mexicans would only help turn over the deserters should the Americans recognize Maximilian's government, which they were not about to do at all. 
eventually the Americans had to withdraw empty-handed. Later, in November 1865, a force of some 500 opatas loyal to Maximilian made a raid on the Arizona ranching community of San Rafael, located along the border near modern-day Sassabe. It's thought that this deliberate attack on an American community was an effort to capture Pesquera, who by now had taken refuge in Arizona. One American was wounded in the ensuing skirmish, but by the time troops were able to respond, the Opatas had hightailed it far from the border. They should probably be grateful that this incident didn't start a whole new conflict between the two countries. And just to wrap up this dangling thread, once the Civil War had ended, the U.S. began applying a lot of diplomatic pressure on the French to stop this invasion of Mexico. American President Andrew Johnson recognized Benito Juarez as the legitimate president of the country. But the more effective move was the habit of the U.S. Army to quote-unquote lose supplies in the area of El Paso that partisans of Juarez just so happened to keep on finding. Eventually, Napoleon III saw that American opposition and Mexican resistance, coupled with more pressing issues closer to home, meant the invasion had to end. And though he personally told Maximilian to give up on the project and come back to Europe, the Emperor of Mexico did not want to abandon his supporters. Unfortunately, that meant he would eventually be captured and executed on June 19, 1867. But that's all happening on the periphery, so we should probably get back to our main narrative. Now, the reason the common soldier might have actually welcomed a military incursion into Mexico is because, well, they were a little bit bored. We talked about this in episode 49, how the boredom of being stationed at isolated frontier posts had a tendency to lead to low morale and discipline problems. During the waning years of the Civil War, and directly after, so 1863 to 1866, there was a marked contrast in the troops from the original California column in 1862. The latter had signed up to fight Confederates and had marched off in pursuit of a noble cause. They were noted by everyone for their bravery, dedication, discipline, and training. The former... Well, there were no more Confederates to fight in the West, and Arizona was really hot and dangerous, which undermined morale at every turn. And this led to everyone's favorite problem in low-morale armies. Desertion. The original California column in 1862 didn't really have this problem. In fact, the 1st California Infantry did not record a single desertion in four years of service. Compare that with the later organized 5th California Infantry, whose various companies would have desertion rates between 30 and 40%. Company D, stationed in Tucson, for example, had a desertion rate of 39%. This company seemed to have a run of bad luck, having three men die in a field hospital, another shot by what was essentially the military police, and ten men given dishonorable discharges. Across all the California units, desertion would reach about 10%, which was above average for the volunteer units, but still below that for the regular army. The reasons for these desertions and lack of morale is everything we talked about before. Arizona was hot, Apaches were everywhere, Confederates were nowhere, pay was late, food was bad, etc, etc, etc. But the icing on the cake was a decision by Carleton to not send the troops home to muster out, 
but instead to release them from service where they were stationed. This was an incredibly unpopular move. Carlton had hoped that by gathering the men to forts in New Mexico for their discharge, it might induce them to stay a bit, populate the territory, and establish a little bit of civilization. To be fair, to a certain extent, this did happen. However, most of the men had wanted to actually make it back home and then be told they were free of service. Though they were given travel allowances, many felt they had been given the old bait-and-switch when told the news. Many signed petitions protesting this move, and soldiers, who once adored Carlton, began openly complaining against him, especially those writing op-ed pieces for local newspapers. But in the end, there was very little they could do beside grumble and take it, and then finally, yes finally, head home, with perhaps a little partying along the way. Author Andrew E. Masick relates how the men of the 2nd California Infantry released from service in May 1866 at Fort Goodwin, which sat along modern U.S. 70 on what is today the San Carlos Reservation, marched to Tucson. Here, an officer noted, quote, The boys indulged themselves to their heart's content drinking Tucson poison, tarantula juice, Arizona lightning, etc., etc., etc. Many of the boys, deprived for so long a time of the beverage they favored, got unconsciously drunk, and in this state where many were robbed of what few greenbacks they possessed by a set of harpies in the shape of regular soldiers belonging to the 14th U.S. Infantry stationed in town. End quote. With the volunteers being mustered out in 1865 and 1866, we can now turn our attention to the last days of the command of James Henry Carleton. As I just said, Carleton's popularity with the common soldier took a serious hit when he told them they were being let go in the middle of the desert instead of back home in sunny California. His popularity was already taking a massive beating due to the fiasco that was the Bosque Redondo Reservation for the Navajos and the Mescalero Apache, which we talked about back in episode 45. Territorial officials also found him unapproachable and authoritarian, with more than a few people making the hyperbolic claim that he was a military dictator. Arizonans in particular felt neglected by him and that the army was never where they needed it to be. As Masick writes, he seemed almost incapable of making friends or allies. In January 1865, Arizona was taken from Carleton's oversight and transferred to the Department of the Pacific. In 1866, a political rival was elected New Mexico's delegate to Congress, which was widely seen as a repudiation of Carleton and his policies, especially the Bosque Redondo Reservation. Through it all, though, Carleton's efficiency and focus on the job made him a darling to his superiors. In October 1865, he was made a brevet major general by Ulysses S. Grant, though all the political pressure would soon catch up with him. The next year, 1866, he was discharged from the Volunteer Army and would be made a lieutenant colonel in the regular army and sent to the 4th U.S. Cavalry in Texas. While technically a promotion, this assignment was, in Masick's words, quote, military oblivion. Carleton would still be serving there in 1873 when he died at the age of 58. Though he died feeling bitter about his treatment in New Mexico and Arizona, newspapers at the time published memorials to him and his accomplishments. 
And I know I've had a lot of fun at his expense since he first came marching across Arizona back in episode 39. But he was an effective, disciplined military commander, even if I personally disagree with his policies and tactics. Under his command, the California Column had marched into Arizona and New Mexico, helping clear out all rebel strongholds in their path. They had helped spearhead mining efforts, either reporting new finds or helping organize forts in mining districts. They had taken the lead in fighting off native raids and came to know the frustration of trying to pin down the Apache. They had kept a check on the French down in Mexico to make sure nothing spilled northward into the territory. And finally, they had lent some badly needed stability to an area that was now beginning to prosper. But the success of the California Column can best be seen in the aftermath of the war. Thousands of men from California had seen Arizona now, and many liked what they saw. After being discharged, hundreds did return to the new territory to try and make their fortunes as miners, ranchers, shopkeepers, businessmen, politicians, lawyers, educators, law enforcement officers, and even full-time military personnel. Eventually, these former soldiers made up roughly 10% of Arizona's fledgling population. And now the time has finally come to close the books on the Civil War period and let that fledgling population finally take flight. Though this wouldn't be the history of Arizona, if we didn't backstep a little bit and follow up with our old friend Cochise, who could not have been happy that the Americans were no longer distracted by their own internal squabbles. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.